nothing else can decide the issue. No more talks, no more negotiation. It must come to battle, for the Emperor is on the march. Really great to have you tuning in. Had a lot of fun over the last few episodes. A lot of fun with those mini-sodes. Really enjoyed doing those. But now it's time to crack on with the narrative. Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. The scene is set. It must be war. Politics, the philosophy and the cultures of the European great powers are now to be decided on the battlefields. In many ways, this conflict was about far more than Napoleon or even the ideals of the French Revolution versus the ancient regimes. This is the climax of a clash that defined Europe since the discovery of the Americas. Would Europe be a land empire, ruled by the French, facing the Mediterranean and projecting power to the old core of Western civilization, into the Balkans, Italy and the Middle East? Or would the British Atlantic-facing international empire triumph? That might sound outlandish, but some historians have certainly viewed it that way. Britain had financed Prussia and other nations to attack the French, conquer French overseas territories. William Pitt the Elder, a famous British politician, had explicitly stated the same. Quote, While we had France for an enemy, Germany was the scene to employ and baffle her arms. End quote. Meaning that Britain would arm and finance continental powers to weaken the French to seize French overseas colonies. This might seem appalling, at least to us, but it is worth bearing in mind that politics was often seen as a zero-sum game for much of human history. For one nation to prosper, it was believed that it had to be at the expense of another. The French sought control of Spain and the Low Countries to expand their own power and weaken the British. Up until 1759, Prussia, Austria and France were realistically the premier European powers. The area that is now modern Italy was a profitable battleground for many adventurers, whether Austrian or French, but now the great conflicts of Napoleon would settle the question. France or Britain? Who would rise? In the last episodes, I've talked about the situation of the French and the British and Prussians on the eve of the Waterloo campaign, I've put a map of the Waterloo campaign up on the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. You can find it in the resources map section. I strongly recommend that you have a look at it whilst we cover the Waterloo campaign. Napoleonic campaigns are notoriously confusing with marches, countermarches, movements to the flank and movements to the rear. They are a world away from the slow plodding of the previous continental wars and even the slow moves of the later American Civil War and World War I. I'll be talking about armies concentrating a lot in this episode. Because of the size of the armies of the period and the poor supply structures and roads, 
They tended to move and camp in a spread out fashion, not so far as to separate, but far enough not to turn into a confused mess. One of the arts of Napoleonic warfare was for a commander to bring his forces together at the appropriate point, known as concentrating. Now, the Allies didn't actually expect this invasion. In early March, Wellington and Blücher had had some preliminary discussions about concentrating forces and making a coordinated defence. But as time passed, the Allies generally expected Napoleon to fight a defensive campaign in France, as he did in 1814. Wellington himself regarded the 1814 campaign as Napoleon's finest. Napoleon had done everything he could to keep the invasion secret. He did so brilliantly. Moving over 100,000 men without the enemy noticing is an amazing achievement. His grand strategic goal seemed to be to march into Belgium and seize Brussels to secure his political position and fracture the alliance by dealing them a hefty defeat. His operational strategy seems to have been to prevent the British and Prussian forces linking up and then to defeat them in detail before pushing on to capture Brussels and secure Belgium. This splitting of the enemy was a favourite move of Napoleon's. It was called taking the central position. Basically, an army inserts itself between the two enemy forces, masking one of them with a small force, usually a corps, whilst the main army brings overwhelming force against the other enemy. Depending on the circumstances, one wing of the army holds one enemy force, whilst the other descends on the other enemy force, pushing it back and breaking it. Then the army reserve force marches to reinforce the attack. At the same time, the other wing holds the other enemy off. Once the main attack succeeds, all the forces change direction and return to the other wing to support it and destroy the remaining enemy. It is extremely unfortunate the marshals Ney, Salt and Rouchy didn't really seem to grasp this. Napoleon should have absolutely drummed it into them. They should have been made to understand it and commit to it. It was a fundamental of Napoleonic warfare. To use the modern military terminology, Napoleon failed to ensure unity of command and simplicity. It appears Napoleon felt if the British field army was destroyed, then the British government would fall and be replaced with the Whig Peace Party. The subsequent loss of British subsidies would hamper the Russians and Austrians and combined with the destruction of the best British and Prussian field armies, he would no longer have to fear a grand alliance. He would also gain Belgium, which he was sure would want to rejoin France. This would make his shaky domestic political situation suddenly unassailable. As a bonus, the taking of Belgium would make an Austrian and Russian attack on France across the Rhine much more dangerous as French forces in Belgium could menace their flank and lines of communication, perhaps even cutting them off. It is very hard to say whether this is actually what Napoleon really wanted. The amount of material on the Hundred Days is immense, and a lot of the sources are either distant, biased, or myopically Anglo-focused. Napoleon and his memoirs haven't helped. Napoleon was notorious at not accepting blame himself, 
so his memoirs are always more likely to pass responsibility off to other people. Also, even the most accurate of memoirs suffers from an element of self-deception and having the memory play tricks. Over time, a half-remembered conversation can morph into a I definitely said that to him. I've read some interesting pieces that hold that Napoleon was indeed acting primarily on political considerations. They argue that even before he left Elba, he was planning the reconquest of Belgium, although certainly some French and Belgians of the period might have said the liberation of Belgium. Certainly, it would have given him considerable political advantages and had strategic value in as much as it contained the nearest Allied armies and was a section of frontier that didn't contain much in the way of natural defences. In his book, 100 Days, Philip Guadalla suggests that the Chalois route was almost predetermined as the only route into Belgium that didn't have modern, well-garrisoned fortifications. In a sense, once Napoleon set the Brussels objective, some of his movements were already predetermined. Getting sources from the French perspective isn't easy. Marshal Soult was not especially furnished with literary gifts, and his subsequent role with the restored Bourbon monarchy made any of his writing necessarily constrained. Marshal Ney was executed after a show trial. That deprives us of two really high-level French accounts. Many French officers were writing in hindsight, seeking to excuse defeat or their own actions. Napoleon has always been a divisive figure, and French histories of the period are quite often a reply to or a rebuttal of an earlier work. Also, sadly, I don't speak or read French, so that really limits our source material to the English-speaking world or translations. Some of the English materials are also quite blinkered or constrained. Siborne, for example, is one of the great primary sources on the campaign. He created the famous battlefield model of Waterloo, and interviewed many of the veterans to put together his meticulous account of the campaign. But he was writing about members of the British aristocracy in their own lifetimes, so he would have been sensitive as to how he referred to them and their conduct in the Waterloo campaign. He would have also been keen to play up the performance of the British and slightly sideline the performance of the Prussian and Nassau-Belgium elements of the Allies. Certainly, it does seem that there were genuine strategic and political benefits to seizing Belgium. And from what we know of Napoleon, it is likely he planned this and other potential strategies through as he spent time in exile on Elba. It is highly unlikely he was moving simply to destroy Wellington or to start a war for the sake of glory. The language of the denouncement by the Allies at the Congress of Vienna, placing him beyond the law, should have warned him that the Allies were not likely to negotiate, but he might have felt that this was part hyperbole, and that at any event, a series of significant victories would compel them to the negotiating table. All in all, I think Napoleon was executing 
a realistic grand strategy for political goals. But it could be argued that he was simply attacking the nearest enemy as quickly as possible. My own view is that this is unlikely. Napoleon rarely did things without a good reason. The real genius of the attack on Belgium was the speed and audacity of it. The defensive campaign was a viable option, whilst the Belgium attack option required him to move quickly enough to prevent the junction of British and Prussian forces. Everything depended on speed and secrecy. The lack of the formal declaration of war meant that the Allies had not sent long-range scouts across the French frontier. This aided Napoleon. His troops had been instructed not to light fires the night before the invasion was launched. Customs posts were closed. The Allies were simply not expecting him to go on the offensive at this stage and were working on concentrating their forces for a combined move against France. They expected to invade France in July 1815 and Wellington genuinely seemed to believe that Napoleon would either fight a fully defensive campaign or that he would not launch an attack so soon and that any French attack would come through Mons to cut the British forces off from their coastal lines of operation. Now, remember when I said to have a look at the maps of the campaign that I posted on the website? They are a fabulous set from the United States Military Academy who have kindly given me permission to post them. Have a look at the one titled Situation of the Armies Start. It really will help. If you can't do that because you are on a treadmill or jogging, what's wrong with you? Knock that off, you dingbat, and get a whiskey and a copy of the map. OK, I'll paint a picture. Imagine at the top of the map is Brussels. At the bottom is France. In the middle of the map runs a roughly straight road from the bottom in France up to Brussels. Halfway up that road, you can make a little dot called Quatre Bras. Then, draw a little sloping line going to the right. That's the Nimur Road, going to a place called Ligny. It is critical to the entire campaign. Quatre Bras and Ligny are the top points of the triangle. Now, draw a line down to the bottom of the road near France and call it Chalois. Everyone with me on this? Triangle. Bottom point near France is Chalois. Top right point is Ligny. And top left point is Quatre Bras. As a bonus, if you walk up the road from Quatre Bras towards Brussels, you bump into a little place called Mont Saint-Jean, or Waterloo, as most British and Americans strangely insist on calling it. Napoleon planned on hammering his way up the road from Chalois to Brussels. Wellington would eventually come to decide to fight Quatre Bras as he concentrated his army, ready to fight, but only after completely misreading the situation and nearly getting part of his army destroyed. Some subordinates disobeying his orders and an appalling performance by Marshal Ney at Quatre Bras got Wellington off the hook entirely. Blucher and the Prussians were moving along the Namur Road towards Ligny. That put them at the top right point of the triangle. Wellington and Blucher would ideally have been looking to combine their forces along that top edge of the triangle to form a line between Brussels and Napoleon. Napoleon really wanted 
to get onto the Namir Road between Wellington and Blucher before they could join forces. This is being said with the benefit of hindsight and a bird's eye view. Computer games, for instance, always make these things look very easy. You always know where your troops are. The trees are just green little blobs on the square that sometimes slow you down. Units move in expected formations smoothly. No one trips or grumbles or gets stuck in the mud. The historical reality on the ground was much, much more confused. None of the leaders would have known exactly where the enemy was. Scouting was difficult and the roads would be jammed with men, horses and heavy guns. Chaos was the order and lord of war. On the 15th of June, 1815, the Armée de Nord, under the command of Emperor Napoleon I, marched across the border for what would be the last campaign of the Napoleonic Wars. If he won, then the reforms sparked by the French Revolution might stand a chance of taking root across Europe. France might stabilise herself at her natural geographic borders and perhaps force a peace that would last. As with Caesar, the die was cast. Napoleon had to push hard and had to push fast. He found that the Allies weren't ready for him. He confidently expected them to fall back along their lines of operation and planned on splitting and destroying them. His army advanced in three main columns, a left, a central and a right. And remember, it was correctly called the Armée de Nord, not the old Grand Armée. But it was still formidable. Wellington had been given command of the Allied forces in Belgium. This was obviously an extremely sensible choice. His military record spoke for itself, but he also had formidable diplomatic skills. He would work with Prince Blucher, who commanded the Prussians. And it is worth bearing in mind there is a key difference between Wellington and Napoleon. Napoleon was the emperor, sole commander of the armed forces of France and civilian ruler of France subject to very little checks or balances, whereas Wellington was a British Army field commander, subject to the constraints of Parliament and the limited resources of his command. Once the Allies received news of the French crossing into Belgium, Wellington became concerned that Napoleon would execute a wide flanking attack through Mons and cut him off from the coastal ports. Wellington was deeply worried that the early movement was a feint. Worse for him, he hadn't got his Peninsula veteran army. He had a mixed Allied force, which he considered, quote, an infamous army, very weak and ill-equipped, and a very inexperienced staff, end quote. It contained only 7,000 Peninsula veterans, and included elements from Hanover, Brunswick and Nassau, Most of Wellington's forces were from allied nations, not from Britain itself. So concerned was Wellington that he planned to concentrate his forces further back from the frontier. He and Field Marshal Blucher had already had preliminary discussions about mutual support, but were far 
from ready for war. Attitudes between the commanders were radically different. Napoleon, the inspirational genius. Wellington, the cold, utter aristocrat. Ruthless, imperious, but intelligent, physically brave and highly professional. He had learned to soldier first in the disaster in Flanders as a junior officer and then he mastered his trade in India. It was there he learned the crucial lessons in supply and logistics. His experiences in Spain showed him to be a careful commander who had a masterful eye for terrain, a brilliant ability to keep his forces supplied and to deal with the political aspects of war. He was also excellent in defence and using the reverse slope tactic, concealing his forces and making sudden, well-timed attacks and counter-attacks. He instilled an inferiority complex in the French Marcelette of no mean order, and his battle-winning record was second to none. His men utterly trusted him. It was clear his men would never love him like they would generals like Napoleon, but there was no doubt that if they had to choose, they would choose him first, as a man and commander who would almost guarantee food, ammunition and victory. Bill Marshal Blucher was almost the flip side of the coin. He was renowned as a soldier's general. Brave, tough and called Papa Blucher by his soldiers. He had dash, bravery and was a stubborn all-round fighter with little in the way of strategic or tactical skills. He knew his shortcomings though and relied heavily on his excellent chief of staff, Gneisenau. Unfortunately, Gneisenau distrusted the British and was a bit of an anglophobe. But luckily, the Prussian liaison officer, Muffling, was able to keep the British and Prussians working together effectively. On the 14th of June 1815, reports began arriving to Prussia's first corps under General Zeiten from various units and civilians that French forces were in the vicinity. Zeiten took only local precautions that day and night before the attack. He wasn't sure if this was the main French force concentrating or not, but he dutifully sent reports to Blücher and Wellington. Other forward commanders also sent reports to the Allied commanders, warning of French movements. Blücher ordered some concentration of the Prussian forces. He and Wellington were becoming aware that the French seemed to be moving and concentrating in the area of Chalois, but weren't sure whether, where or when an attack would form. A turning attack through Mons remained at the front of Wellington's mind and seemed to obsess him through the entire campaign. After discussions, the commanders decided not to alter their current positions yet. By 2100 hours on the 14th, the commanders received firm reports from Zeiten that he was facing combined French forces of horse, foot and guns. In response, Blucher ordered Zeiten and his corps to take position on the Sambray River, try and delay the French advance. Other Prussian corps commanders were ordered to begin concentrating their forces along the Namur Road, near Sobref and Namur. Blucher himself went to Namur, whilst Wellington was based in Brussels. It is worth noting here that it's clear once the British and Prussians 
were beginning to take the steps to prepare themselves against an attack. They clearly weren't ready for the storm that was about to break upon them. Zaiten began preparing for battle. He was in a good position with a variety of troops. The Prussians had adopted the French corps system, which had been invented by Napoleon. I covered the concept of the army corps in episode 002, so please have a listen if you missed it. The initial French attack fell on Zeiton's corps at 0330 on the 15th of June 1815. French columns swiftly pushed Prussian pickets and cavalry outriders back. By 0430, Zeiton was aware of heavy firing, and just before 0500, he dispatched messages to Wellington and Blücher to inform them that war had begun. These messages were probably received around about 0900 hours, and Wellington satisfied himself that Blücher had taken up the right positions and decided to wait on further intelligence and events. Blücher began to order his corps to move to positions after their night's rest. Zeiten was ordered to perform a fighting retreat to buy time for the other Prussians to concentrate in their positions. By now, the Prussian 1st Corps of Zeiten was heavily engaged. By 11.30, the French were in possession of the crucial bridge at Chalois and were crossing parts of the Sambre River. The Prussians fought with great bravery as they began to be forced back, suffering heavy losses. Napoleon scented an opportunity and turned a portion of his cavalry loose. The Prussians inflicted sharp losses on the French, especially against the French cavalry, including killing Cavalry General Le Tort, commander of the Dragoons of the Imperial Guard. He was one of the best French cavalry commanders, and his loss was probably a significant blow to the French. Zeiten and his corps had done well. They had fought hard, and brought the scattered forces of the corps from a line stretching 40 miles wide at some points and broken by the River Sombre, to a position back at Saint-Armand, nearly 20 miles back and covering a much smaller area. The 2nd and 3rd Corps of the Prussian army moved to positions and would meet at Sombreff at about 10 o'clock on the 16th of June. Orders to 4th Corps had gone astray, and the 4th Corps commander, General Bulo wasn't actually aware the war had started. He had acted on discretionary orders, sent on the 14th of June, that had told him to have his corps moved to a point within a day's march of Hanno. He delayed leaving until after his troops had eaten, and then began the huge task of moving his corps. A second order was sent, ordering him to concentrate his corps at Hanno. But he seems to have only received this order on the midday of the 15th of June, hours later, making the reasonable assumption that the Prussian army was going to concentrate at Hanna, and seeing no hurry in a routine peacetime deployment, he decided to delay moving the corps until the 16th of June, as he wanted supplies to be redirected to the Hanna destination. He duly sent a dispatch to what he thought was still in the location of the Prussian HQ, unaware that it had moved. The rider didn't even get to the old HQ until 2100 hours of the 15th of June. Further dispatches crossed each other, and by the evening of the 15th of June, Blucher realised 
that Fourth Corps would not be in place to support him at Ligny, but was still 60 miles away and only just aware that the war had begun. He would have to fight without its help. This is actually really important. It shows we have to get out of the modern way of thinking about communications and knowledge. We are looking at a circumstance where a war has started, one that is historically famous, and yet one of the key generals and 30,000 troops hadn't realised that a war had started. And you can see how easily it happened. No incompetence was involved, just men riding horses, with messages written on paper, trying to coordinate mass movements of men and equipment. Orders and information could take hours to travel and be badly out of date by the time they arrived. One of the key skills of an army commander was to be able to issue orders that predicted actions hours in advance. It was incredibly easy for things to go wrong, be misunderstood or just not work out. Imagine playing chess and having to write down all your moves, five moves in advance, before they are made and not knowing what your opponent has written down for their moves either. Imagine the chaos of that. One of the big changes over the Victorian period is the sheer sophistication of army communications and organisation, especially in the later period. For Wellington, things were going somewhat differently. It was only by 1500 hours that he had had sufficient confirmation that hostilities had started, and not until 1800 hours on the 15th of June that he was aware of the heavy engagement of Zeiton's corps and began drafting orders for the concentration of his forces. He remained preoccupied about a French strike at Brussels through Mons. Even when he gave orders to concentrate his army, he blundered heavily. He told his forces to concentrate at Nivelles, which would have been well outside of the triangle I described earlier. Fortunately for him, his subordinate chief of staff to the Duke of Orange ignored his order and sent the Dutch-Belgium troops to Quatre Bras. In any event, the delay meant that the British would not be able to support the Prussians at Ligny. Morale amongst the French junior ranks and soldiers was high, but more senior officers were somewhat more ambivalent about the conflict, or were plain rusty. Marshal Ney was an inconsistent commander at the best of times, but during this campaign he displayed some of his worst qualities. He had only been summoned to join the campaign on the 12th of June 1815, Many of the rank-and-file troops felt uneasy about the loyalty of their own generals, not helped by the treason of a senior French general, Louis-Auguste Victor, Comte de Canis de Beaumont, on the 15th of June, 1815. Beaumont had been denounced by Marshal Davout already, who'd refused to employ him. Writing to Napoleon, quote, 
I cannot sit idly by and watch this officer wear the uniform of this country. His treasonous statements concerning the Emperor are well known to all. The brigade and regimental commanders of the 14th Infantry Division despise him. Who would trust such a man? End quote. Nevertheless, Etienne Maurice Gerard, leader of the 4th Corps, vouched for him, so he retained his position as commander of the 14th Division and was placed in the vanguard of the advance. My military listeners will doubtless recognise that a division command in the lead of a corps making an attack is a position of honour and trust. On the pretext of scouting ahead, the traitor rode to a Prussian patrol and surrendered. He wrote back to his corps commander, Gerard, saying, quote, They will not get any information from me which will injure the French army, composed of men that I love. End quote. He then turned over all the French operational plans to a delighted Prussian staff. He had essentially handed over the keys to Napoleon's campaign to the Allies. Blücher remained shocked and rather disgusted, calling him a traitor to his face. Napoleon was informed of the defection and altered his dispositions accordingly. From the French perspective, the cards were going Napoleon's way. The enemy was geographically divided and hadn't properly concentrated their forces. Some of his troops had started late and Chalois could have been captured earlier if General Van Damme had received his orders and started his march on time. But all in all, things were going well. Warfare is not like a computer game or running a shop. All plans suffer friction when they come into contact with reality. The decisive moves of the campaign were about to come to a head. Not at Waterloo, but at Quatre Bras and Ligny. Still, Napoleon had good reason to be pleased. He had caught his enemies flat-footed. He had made a daring move to split them apart. He had managed to get his troops across the Sombre, despite resistance, and he had pushed the Prussians back. It seemed like the beginnings of another Napoleonic triumph. A sharp surprise attack, brilliantly succeeding. All that was left was to defeat the enemy in detail, and then on to Brussels and victory. French corps and divisional commanders expressed frustration that they couldn't move because other French units were clogging up the roads ahead of them. As the campaign developed, Napoleon was reasonably happy with the speed of the march. Despite the problems with blocked roads or straggling units, he was moving at a blistering pace. Some units were scattered or straggling, but on the whole, the bulk of the Armée de Nord was roughly where the Emperor expected it to be. He had to be a little careful not to smash the Prussians so hard that they retreated along with the British. He still needed to be able to get at them and defeat them. Still, things were going more slowly on the afternoon of the 15th of June. The French centre column was engaged, but confusion over the chain of command and Marshal Rouchy's status meant that opportunities were missed. The right column had to bypass Chalois due to the logjam of men cramming across the bridge. Napoleon 
reached the Bellevue Inn near Chalois. He decided to impose tighter order on things and split the army into two wings. He decided to give Marshal Ney command of the left wing to face Wellington and Marshal Rouchy command of the right wing to face Blucher. Napoleon would command the army reserve, including the guard. With this decision made, Napoleon took a well-earned nap. According to Colonel Jaimez, at 1900 hours, Napoleon was joined by Marshal Ney, to whom he gave command of the army's left wing. Ney had to find out who he was commanding, where they were, and generally take a grip on his new staff. He laboured hard, but crucially he had one personal staff officer and no other staff. Worse, he had no army staff to support him. A marshal commanding a wing of an army could normally expect a lieutenant general as his chief of staff. It wasn't clear what verbal instructions he received from Napoleon. It is possible that Napoleon told him to push to Quatre Bas, and this is supported by Marshal Salt's later message. But the evidence is inconclusive, witnesses are contradictory, and Napoleon's account of this first meeting with Ney is tainted by being made in hindsight of exile and defeat. Napoleon at St. Helena states that he positively ordered Ney to move beyond Quatre Bras with a strong force. That doesn't seem likely to me. Other accounts state that Napoleon was much less prescriptive, and in any case, Napoleon would probably not have been quite so aware of the vital importance of Quatre Bras at this point in time, because plans were still fluid. Certainly, Ney took command and went forward trying to find out the situation of his troops. He received a request from some advanced French cavalry to send infantry support to help them fight a few units at Quatre Bras, but Ney decided not to make a night attack against the British. Ironically, if he had sent even three or four regiments of infantry forward to support the cavalry, he would probably have won the campaign for his emperor at that moment. Unknown to Ney, there were only around 4,700 Allied troops at Quatre Bar, and they were confused, unsupported and exposed. But his men had been marching and fighting since 03.30 that morning, and they needed rest. Ney returned to Chalois at midnight to have supper with Napoleon, and they discussed tactics until 0200 in the morning. The fateful decision was made. Ney was to take the left wing of the army against the British, while Napoleon and Grouchy took the right against the Prussians. This meeting is subject to immense controversy. There is even debate about whether it happened. It appears that Napoleon wanted Ney to move forward the next morning past Quatre Bras, thus cutting Wellington and Blucher off from each other. What was said and what exact orders were given to Ney have been heavily scrutinised. I know it is hard to believe, as Napoleon and Ney were key figures, and orders were written and gallons of ink had been spilt to write mountains of paper about the events, but we just don't know exactly what happened. It comes back to some of the biases and misunderstandings I've warned about. Even the best witness, who has clearly written things down, won't give you a perfect version of events. Just the act of remembering something 
slightly colours and changes the memory itself. It's why judges and juries should be so careful about how unreliable witness testimony really is. Put simply, if at this meeting, Napoleon clearly ordered Ney to engage the British at Quatre Bras, destroying or breaking them, and pushing them back, while he fought the main action against the Prussians on the 16th at the same time, then Ney, as a senior army commander, had everything he needed to know that he had to act in a decisive battle the next day. If that was the order, and Ney understood it, then his utter laziness the next day is baffling. It is hard to see how the order to push on past Quatre Bras the next day and seize an objective beyond it could be interpreted as anything other than a requirement to take Quatre Bras as a necessary first step. Ney should have known that the British would be moving from Brussels towards the Prussians, so he would have to be ready to fight at some point. On the other hand, if the discussion at midnight was more of a general discussion of tactics, Ney should have at least been ready the next day by getting all his troops into position early in the morning of the 16th of June. That way, if he was still waiting a formal order from the Emperor, his troops would be ready to move. On the Allied side, roughly whilst Ney was scrambling round in the dark, then meeting with Napoleon, Wellington was receiving messages indicating that a French force of unknown strength had crossed the Sambre, pushing the Prussians back. Still, it wasn't clear if this was the main French attack, a preliminary skirmish, or a holding force meant to distract Wellington whilst Napoleon swung round to the north through Mons to cut the British off from their supply lines. Wellington had to be careful not to jump too early. If he moved to confront the French at the Sambre and Napoleon was performing one of his famous flank or rear marches, then there was very strong possibility that the entire British field army would have been utterly annihilated. That would probably have ended the coalition. Only British gold paid for the armies fighting Napoleon. Wellington could not afford to make a mistake against the genius of the Emperor. Wellington decided to proceed with the Duchess of Richmond's ball that night and wait on news of events. At the ball itself, there was a riot of colour. The bold red uniforms of the infantry and cavalry officers, dark green for the rifle officers, black for the Brunswickers, and of course, plenty of tartan and blue. Wellington took supper at around 0100 in the morning of the 16th, but soon the bad news began to flow in, first of the crossings of the Sambre in force, then various other messages. Slowly, officers began to discreetly drift off to their regiments. Wellington ordered the Prince of Orange to depart for his command, but the Prince returned shortly after with the momentous news that the French had already seized Chalois and were menacing Quatre Bras, with Brussels itself soon to be under threat. Wellington ordered the Prince to return to his command, then gently excused himself. It was clear to observers that even the usually unflappable Wellington was concerned. He asked the Duke of Richmond if he had a good map, 
the Duke of Richmond said he had, and he took Wellington into his dressing room. Wellington shut the door and said, quote, Napoleon has humbugged me by God. He has gained 24 hours march on me. I have ordered the army to concentrate at Quatre Bar, but we shall not stop him there. And so, if I must fight, I must fight him there. End quote. And at that point, he passed his thumbnail over the position of Waterloo. When the morning of the 16th of June arrived, Napoleon's final downfall began. The circumstances and Marshal Ney's actions are somewhat baffling. Ney was supposed to push past Quatre Bras, brushing any opposition aside. He had a formidable force to do it with. But critically, he had not concentrated it and got it ready for moving or fighting. Instead, he left large portions of his force scattered around the countryside. If he concentrated his forces ready for action, he would have been able to use around 42,000 men. That was plenty for the job in hand, and the force wasn't any larger than he was used to commanding. Even if he was waiting for a positive order from the emperor to actually attack, he should have got his troops ready. As time in the morning ticked by, Marshal Ney did nothing. A golden opportunity lay before him if he but reached out to grasp it. Join me next time as we talk about the 16th of June, one of the little known but key dates in modern European history. Okay, thank you for listening. Um, Feel free to contact me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. That's ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments or concerns. You can also visit our website at ageofvictoriapodcast.com. There's a load of great material on there and I'll keep on adding extra maps and pictures as we go on to support the episodes. The show can be downloaded from iTunes, Stitcher, etc. And if you want to help support the show, please do visit the website or better yet, leave a review on iTunes. Growing our community is a fantastic way to keep this podcast going and the reviews really help.